Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. Hello, I'm joined here today by Dr. Gloria Baptiste Roberts. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Cosby. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. I'm uh, grateful to speak with you. And uh, so uh, heard wonderful things about you, wanted an opportunity to learn a little more. Um, Can you tell me a bit about yourself, please? Okay, I was uh, born in the New Orleans, uh, Louisiana Charity Hospital quite a long time ago. I was born like at one o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. And I'm saying that because I stay up late at night and I always tell people, I think it was because I was born like after midnight. And so all of my creative juices appear to come to me after midnight. Um, I was born to uh, parents, um, My father was from Louisiana, from a little town called New Roads, Louisiana, and my mother was from Macomb, Mississippi. And um, they divorced when I was six years old. We lived in Baton Rouge um, when when I was born. And um, my father's parents lived like 30 miles away in New Roads. So when my parents divorced, my mother felt that she did not uh, want to leave me with babysitters because I had a bad experience with babysitters. And so they decided that my paternal grandparents uh, would be um, take uh, custody of me. And that was a mutual agreement, which was a wonderful uh, thing in my life because they were both 30 minutes away. They could visit me at any time. And so I was basically raised by those paternal grandparents and in New Roads, Louisiana, a very small town. Uh, If you know the author, Ernest Gaines, he was from that area as well. The uh, author who, he he died last year. He wrote the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. So it gives you an idea of that little Louisiana town. But my parents both remained in Baton Rouge and they both remarried. So my first grade school was in Baton Rouge at St. Francis Xavier. Um, a school that's where I attended first grade. And then when they divorced, I started second grade in New Roads, Louisiana at St. Augustine um, School, elementary school. Wow. So uh, so you had an opportunity to uh, do some things that you probably wouldn't have uh, done, you said, with your uh, other, did you ever, were you in touch with your maternal grandparents at all? Definitely, I was in touch with them. My maternal grandmother uh, by then had moved from Macomb to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And she was a school teacher. She taught first grade at uh, Earl Trevelyan uh, Elementary School at that time. As a matter of fact, one of my colleagues uh, at Texas Southern University was one of her students. She taught him in first grade. And he's a renowned photographer. 
who um, just retired from Texas Southern University. So it was so much fun to know that someone who attended Texas Southern University with me was taught by my grandmother in uh, Hattiesburg. And my grandfather just drove the school bus. He was also a deacon in the church. So and it that, sounds like your grandparents on both sides played a very important role for you. Very much so, yes. So you've had an illustrious and long career from what I understand. Um, you had some experiences that helped to shape you and it sounded like those individuals did help in shaping you, is that correct? Oh, most definitely. As a matter of fact, I hyphenated my last name as a tribute to my grandfather. I love my daddy, don't get me wrong, Dr. Kosky, but I adored my grandfather and my grandmother. And they were such perfect role models for me. Um, my grandmother was always doing things in the community and she took me with her. We had to give food to people. We had to um, make sure that if they needed someone to stay up at night with them because they didn't have relatives, then, you know, we both did that, and we, you know, did it as a team. And so that's where I really learned the beginning uh, of social work. And of course, my grandfather, on the other hand, was uh, so into family. His family meant everything to him. And he demonstrated that. If you knew Frank Batiste, you knew that his family was foremost in his life. My grandparents were Creole speaking. And... Um, they spoke, and you know, Creole was broken French. And instead of teaching it to us, they wanted to make sure we didn't learn it because that's how they communicated, not wanting us to learn the language so that they could talk privately among themselves. But of course, I never actually learned how to speak it, but I understood it. So I, we, we all mostly understood. We just couldn't speak it because we didn't want them to know how much we actually knew. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a matter of fact, uh, my grandparents, you know, particularly my grandfather, everything was uh, like those TH words were like those. You got to learn those things over there, yes, yeah. So when my mother would visit me or when I would visit my mother, she had, she would just, um, my little knuckles are, just hit my little knuckles saying, no, Anne, you can't. They called me Anne by my middle name. My name is Gloria Anne Batiste Roberts. And so she said, you cannot say those. You have to put your teeth on your tongue and say those. And so that's how I sort of learned how to start, it, start you know, speaking uh, better when she started doing that because I spoke like my grandparents, doors, teens over there. And so she taught me about how to do it. And how to do it was to put my teeth on my tongue. This, that, those, you know. So, so um, I felt that if I really learned the Creole, that I would, it would put me back into those teens over there. So I figured I, I better not actually, first of all, let them know that I knew the language. And secondly, speaking it, because then I would keep saying those teens over there. Wow. I love those people. <laughs> uh, but that's a great story. I'm reminded of uh, uh, one of my family members who said when they would listen in to uh, grownups' conversations, um, they would, you know, suddenly eyes would, would light up when they heard something juicy. And the, <laughs> and the, 
grandparents would look at them and say, uh, you know, uh, little donkeys have big ears. It's time for you to go. <laughs> and so they would put them out of the room or whatever. But um, it, it sounded like you learned an awful lot in those experiences. Yeah, it was so much fun. My cousins and I laugh about it now about because if we if there was a word we didn't understand, we would ask each other. Now, what does that mean? And so we would help each other out. Well, I see. OK, so you you developed your uh, way of going to reference material and knowing yes, how to exactly. <laughs> That's super. Um, so I was suggesting from what I've read and what I've seen, uh, you've had a long and illustrious career. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you have uh, learned from those experiences and uh, maybe a couple of your most memorable contributions and tell us why you might be that way? Okay, so uh, my father um, subscribed to Jet Magazine and to Ebony Magazine. So he made sure that after he read them that I had them. So I read all about... Um, what was happening in the world, in the Black world. I subscribed to Double Day Book Club because I was an awesome reader. I mean, I read profusely. But in New Roads, you couldn't get to the library unless, because, you know, at that time it was segregated. So we had what was called a bookmobile, where there was a van that came around and you were able to check out books on the bookmobile. It drove in front of your house like every month. And so by the time uh, I high school, I had read every book on the bookmobile. And the first book that I ever received that a Black person had written was Man Child in the Promised Land. It was a feature of the Double Day Book Club. And that was my first time seeing a book by a Black person. And so by then I was in high school and I told my homeroom teacher, I said, I received a book and it's by a Black person. And she, I found out, she was my homeroom teacher and she was from Alabama. And she said, that's your first time reading a book by a black person? Because in, I loved literature. And so my literature teacher who was brilliant, you know, we learned about Robert Frost and about um, John and in, in undergraduate school, with, I had um, nurses who were from Ireland. And so all the poems that I knew about uh, Edgar uh, Allan Poe and all these people, they didn't look like me, but I didn't think about it at the time. And so when I first got that book, Man Child in the Promised Land, it did something to me, Dr. Cosby. And then I wanted, and then my homeroom teacher told me, Black people have been writing books for years, um, Gloria. And she told me about the Negro Caravan. And uh, she told me about Langston Hughes and about Chestnut and all these wonderful people. So I could not wait to get my hands on these books, right? So of course the bookmobile, I, I talked to the lady on the bookmobile who was a black lady and she had not heard of any of those books. And she said, I don't think I'll be able to get them for you. And of course, on the other hand, my dad had all these jets and ebony. So I'm reading all of this and I'm finding out then that black people wrote other books as well. So my passion for collecting books by black authors and reading books by black authors started with Man, Child, and the Promised Land, and then the Negro Caravan. It took me years to find the Negro Caravan in a used bookstore. But when I um, came to Texas Southern University, and I came because of my parents' divorce, the Southern University was in Baton Rouge, 
and they were kind of like plugging who are you going to live with they never thought about me living on campus and I'm like hey I need to get away so I don't have I'm not in that fight so I chose Texas Southern University because I saw in Jet Magazine that they were involved in a riot and I said oh they are on it they are fighting for their riot for their rights and I think that would be a good school for me and that's how I selected Texas Southern, reading about a riot that they had on campus. And um, mm. it, um, it served me well. I loved Texas Southern. I found out about all these Black authors that I loved and was um, able to read all these books. Maya Angelou was on our campus at one time. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And just, it was a magnificent experience. And then to follow that with Howard University, and to see Gwendolyn Brooks in our uh, auditorium, she and Hakeem Mahabudi, who was Don L. Lee at the time, all these people, by then I've collected all of their books and I've read all of their books. So I am just so excited in my life to have all of this combined with social work, of course, which my grandmother taught me that you have to give back to others. And of course, um, giving was always important. All of my parents uh, shared that experience. And what I loved about my grandfather was that he worked in the fields. He was a farmer. And I didn't know, you know, I read about sharecropping in Jet Magazine. And I thought, oh, these poor people. Well, I didn't know my grandfather was sharecropping. I knew for Christmas that the white people would bring uh, candy and oranges and cookies and all of this stuff. But I thought they were just being nice. I didn't know that he actually didn't own the land that he farmed that the other people, the white people own the land. And then they were just giving us these things at Christmas because I never felt like, I thought we were wealthy. You know, we, there was nothing to make me feel that we were not. We were farmers. So we had, my grandfather was farmers and we, we planted everything. We had everything there. My dad had a good job in that woods, And so he supported us. He always um, made sure that, that we had things, but I didn't know that you know, that really, we were poor people. I, I had no idea until actually I came to Howard and and and, and all of this was explained about uh, finances. And uh, my grandfather would work in the fields, but when he came home and my grandmother cooked, she was a housewife, he made sure that the children ate, that I had food and my, and my cousins who would be in and out when their mother would leave her husband she would come to live with us because at first it was just my grandparents and me but then my cousins would start coming whenever uh, she would have problems with her husband and he would make sure that we had food before he ate and he had worked in the fields all day and one of the most profound things that I did see that taught me about family and love and I was 15 at the time he had one of my cousins who was an infant in his arms in a rocking chair on the porch and the rocker, well, he rocked too far and the rocker was about to fall. And I looked up, when I looked up, he, I couldn't catch the rocker, but he held the baby up in his, in mid air. He didn't care about if he broke his back. He didn't care about how he was ill. He would have been hurt. He only cared about saving that child. And that really taught me about love and family more than anything. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't worried about that baby at the time. I'm so sorry. I, I was so crazy about my grandfather and wanted to make sure. And by the grace of God, he was not injured. So 
that sense of family and love for family stood with me and sticks with me. And that's why I carry Batista Roberts to this day. When you say Batiste, Dr. Cosby, I think of Frank Lucase Batiste. Wow. Um, I, I almost could see that experience with your grandfather holding the baby up in the air. Um, uh, that's very moving. So um, given your experiences, you wanting to go to Texas Southern before going to Howard for your master's degree, um, if you could change the world, um, what would you do? People would care more for each other. You know, history, usually, you know, we can't change history, but we can work as hard as we can, that it does not repeat itself. Uh, there are so many world challenges right now. Um, we're talking about health disparities. We're talking about social injustice, uh, climate change, economic inequalities. There's just so much people uh, hating another race because of their religion or how they look. It, that is just overwhelming to me. And so if I could change each other, we, I mean, change the world, we would love each other better. And we will love each other better when we are better understood. Mm. Very uh, noble attributes. I appreciate that. <laughs> So you mentioned something about civil rights, um, you know, human rights issues. Uh, given what you see happening in the world today, um, what what civil rights or human rights issues would you embrace, and why would you think those are the ones to, you look at? What's most important about them? Oh my God, that you know, Dr. Cosby, that's a hard question. Well, right now, voter, right now, voter suppression and racial injustice right now are, are really key in, in my deal because they impact each other. And so if we do not find a way to make sure that our ancestors did not die in vain for us to have the right to vote and that vote counted, you know, we can get out there and vote because we, we're doing a pretty good job of it. But if there's a group of people who are going to say that it didn't happen, if there could be truth in the world, truth, real honest truth, that would be so, so good. That would make me very happy. And right now I never had a clue in my, that, 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 that democracy would be threatened in any way. Um, you know, I looked at other countries and thought, oh, those poor people. And now I'm looking at us. And I'm thinking, oh my God, please help us. I pray all the time because the situation now is so dire. And, um, you know, we talk, we have great ideas, we're brilliant, but we have to make sure that prayer is at the forefront and that we have to stick together and we have to, we have to work like we've never worked before. And we have to let our children know how important it is, it is. I constantly teach my students, my social work students, my debate students, the importance of giving and sharing and respecting. And what can we do to make this change? And so I remembered when President Obama ran for office that second time and the students seemed rather complacent. And I'm like, hey guys, 
what are you doing to make sure that the president is reelected? And um, one student, someone said, Dr. Glow, you don't do the media. You don't do um, so many of the social outlets. She said, we got this. And I'm like, is she just trying to be smart with me? And then I found out on voter, they organized all of these marches together from TSU to the voter registration place because they were in on social media and I wasn't aware of a lot of things. They had been working their magic and I didn't know that. She said, trust me, Dr. Brown, we are on it. They, they understood the importance of Barack Obama being reelected and they did. And they continue oh. to understand. They're, they're listening and I make sure that they do listen because listening is so important. So uh, those are very inspiring uh, words you've mentioned and uh, certainly a great story. Um, you mentioned voter uh, registration and voter suppression. Uh, and you know what the, this new discussion about uh, people uh, not wanting to tell the truth about critical race theory and about how that is impacting uh, communities across the country and how there are in fact um, individuals who are funding uh, the sort of uh, what they used to call fake news are now trying to say those same kinds of things with respect to uh, the, the facts and the uh, history and the other pieces that uh, help in uh, making up some of the discussion related to critical race theory. I say all that to ask you, what are your thoughts about that? And given what you were just saying about voter registration and voter suppression, um, what do you tell young people today? We tell them the truth. Where I, where I work, we tell them the truth. They understand the truth more than you would, you would think. I am really surprised at how these young people are so well read, the ones that I work with. And I'm so proud of them. I really am. They are in the know, they understand and they want to make a difference. Uh, because my students are, in, are debaters, they have to know what's going on in the world because when they debate these students from other schools, they have to know the facts and they have to be able to, um, to, to confront and to, to um, let them know what's, hey, this is not right because you said it. And according to so-and-so, this is not the way it is. And you have not told the truth in this round. So and I'm saying all of that to say they understand the importance of truth. And in debate, unfortunately, it teaches you sometimes to stretch it so you can win the debate. But that is, that's a little bit different. The competition is one thing, but knowing and understanding truth as it's as you stand on truth and to help our people and to make sure that democracy stands they understand that truth as well do you understand what i'm saying that when you're in a competitive round you right, pick I up some things and you say some things that you know that might not be true but that's so you can win that doesn't have any bearing on the fact that um you may have exaggerated or you may have given a, a, an untruth to win that round but in actual life, that doesn't work. And so uh, you've, you've raised another point for me, which is um, 
how do you tell your students, and these are undergraduate students, correct? Yes, they are undergraduates. Uh, how do you tell them or show them or teach them how to differentiate the truth from the untruths? Well, normally they know what the truth really is by, because they're well read, because we have taught them this is how it was, this is how it is, and this is how it is to be. But once they get in a round, and especially they're, they, they're always normally debating uh, other races other than themselves. And so they pull a lot of punches. And when people are pulling a lot of punches and you're drowning, you catch on to whatever you can in terms of the debate. But in terms of truth, we teach truth. This is how it was and this is how it is. For life, we, do, we teach for life skills. They need mm -hmm. to know the truth and they need to advocate truth and, and, and always advocate truth and always advocate for people who have less than you have. Uh, the, um, we get a lot of requests for uh, pre presentations and people will say, well, how much do you charge? And if it's for the community, I said, we can't charge you anything. Of course, we're always looking for more funding for travel and that kind of thing. But we don't ask for it if it's at a community center and they need a Juneteenth program. We do it to be able to, to share our knowledge and skills with the community. You have to give back. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology. G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, Professor of Music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.